So last week, Proverbs 18 and 19, and again, lots of different, we covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time, but we started out with talking about the idol of self and talked about that person that may isolate themselves and idolize themselves and the consequences of that. We talked about the value of mercy over judgment. Uh, one topic that came out was these deep waters. The deep waters, our hearts, our purposes, and, and how those things give rise to our confession and what we confess and what that means in our life, the life and death consequences of our confession. We talked about the high wall of that rich man that he had in his imagination that he would hide behind and, and had an example in the Babylonian king Belshazzar who literally, it, you know, it's, it's interesting because Solomon wrote this, these proverbs long before the Babylonian empire. And yet we saw that come true with Belshazzar literally is almost a prophecy about this rich man hiding behind these high walls. And we know that very night he was killed by his enemies that were able to breach those walls. And that those of us who are humble, as we run to God, as we run like it is an emergency to that safe tower, that's where we find refuge. And kind of ended up last week about the poor. There's a lot of verses in Proverbs about the poor. And poor materially, poor spiritually, those that are poor in spirit. And that's kind of a review of last week. The, the profit and loss of the riches of God's kingdom. We kind of went over that. This week, uh, Proverbs 20 and 21. And like all of these chapters, a lot... And so, uh, some, these are some of, my, some of my favorite Proverbs are in these two chapters. And some of them I'm not going to be covering. And that was really hard to just to, like, not have my own personal... because. Uh, one of them is, you know, whoever loves wine and oil will not be rich. And there's so much of that that, that, you can, that you can dive into in that wine and oil and riches and what that means. But we're not going to talk about that. We're talking about the, there, is, there is a first proverb is, is about wine and how it can mock us, how it can get us into fights. We're going to revisit those issues, some, some more things about the, this king that we'll see throughout Proverbs, the king we're told. Um, justice and diligence. There's a couple of Proverbs that are stand out about marriage and relationship, God's sovereignty and man's cravings, those cravings we have. But the first verse I want to read is Proverbs 20, verse 1. And it says, wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That is also translated where it says not wise, it, it can also be translated will not become wise. So, meaning that to rely upon, to be led astray by wine and other alcoholic drinks will stunt your spiritual growth. Now, really clearly, there is not a blanket prohibition in the Bible against drinking. Um, in fact, there's some verses and examples, even from our Lord, that would encourage its responsible and beneficial use. So this isn't a legalistic take, but we have this proverb that says indulging in that will mock you, will get you into fights, will get you into trouble. 
there's a lot of clear warnings against dependence and drunkenness. I think we all are aware of those, some of those warnings. 1 Corinthians and Galatians both classify drunkards as those who will simply not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's kind of that ultimate, that ultimate um, result of being led astray over and over and over again until, the, until you're classified as a drunkard. And I think that's up for, for interpretation even individually in each of our lives. But, I, but the truth of it is relying upon anything other than God's spirit to obtain wisdom and peace. If we use it to relax, to deal with trials of life, it will eventually mock you and have you brawling with your circumstances. And like we're warned, it can even lead you astray from life itself. Ephesians 5.18, Paul succinctly writes, as he is so brilliant, the Apostle Paul, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We also know that the Apostle Paul encouraged Timothy to take a little wine. So we have that balance, right? We have that balance. Don't get drunk. That's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. For me, personally, I am totally sober. God delivered me. I was a, I'm a former alcoholic addict, and for me, it's a, it's a total no. But it would be wrong for me to put that on anybody out here or anybody listening and and that's, that's how we look at it as a church. That's how I look at it personally. Um, it's part of my personal testimony that God's delivered me from that. So one of the reasons I don't do it isn't because I think it's necessarily even inherently sinful, but it's just that I want to maintain that testimony in my life. And we talked about, <laughs> amen, we talked about going out to U-turn, and it's, it is a valuable um, witness to those guys that it's possible. It's possible to be totally sober. Now, it's not necessary to be a Christian, though. And I hope we're all clear on that. I hope we're all clear on that. And um, I think there's also a valuable witness in some of these guys' lives at U-Turn that could say, yes, there is, there is the ability to use it responsibly and not be an addict. But that's not... We can debate that all day long. People fall in... Both sides of that, we're just going through the scripture, right? If you're led astray by it, it's going to get you in trouble. Let's leave it at that. Proverbs 20, 2 and 3. And this is where we kind of get into the king. And we talked about a few of these other verses, but these verses, this, this one I really like. The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. It is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. That quarreling, I think in the context of this, as we see it flowing through, is with authority, I think, maybe possibly with the king itself. Now, we know every time there's a verse about the king in Proverbs, there's an autobiographical aspect to that, that Solomon is speaking from personal experience. He was the king. We also know that it's prophetic, that it's speaking of the king of kings, Jesus Christ and can even allude to leaders that are inspired by and submitted to their heavenly king and rule in righteousness. Now here we're warned of the king, he's likened to a lion, that the growling of a lion um, is, is provoking him. You know, my, my dogs, they, 
big dogs, they eat together, and my one dog eats a little bit faster than my other dog. And when she is not finished, and he's finished, and he comes a little bit too close, <laughs> you know, she starts to growl. She's not going to let him get her food. They're friends. They're, they're on good terms. They don't fight. But even so, she's letting him know that there's danger if he keeps pursuing that, that um, avenue to get her food. But again, the king here likened to a lion. And this is a verse that we skipped over, a proverb that we skipped over last week. In Proverbs 19.12, a king's wrath is like the growling of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. And these verses tell us the danger, again, of angering the king, of quarreling with him in rebellion to his will. But they also promise that cooling and refreshing blessing of his favor. Jesus, the Messiah, is also called a lion in numerous places. There's a verse in Revelation 5.5, and um, it says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That this lion, this This lion steps up in this brave and courageous way, and he can do what nobody else can do. He can open this seal and begin to redeem the earth. Now, a lion, an actual lion, is this deadly predator with no equal, and his roar evokes terror. I don't know if anybody knows this, but a roar of a lion can be heard for up to five miles away. And... That would be like, if we were here in church right now, we could hear a lion roar in Florence or even at the Royal Gorge Bridge. Think how far away that is. We could hear that from the Royal Gorge Bridge. Thankfully, the Lord gives us advance warnings when we stray. Advance warnings. It's like thunder from a storm that you... You, you, you know, you hear thunder, but you don't even see the clouds yet. You know, we have that sometimes when you're out in the mountains and you'll hear thunder and you're like, where is that coming from? But that roar of God's warning, giving us plenty of time to understand that the path we're on is going to get us in trouble. Now, who of us, if we were in a situation where there were lions out in the wild, would keep walking into a forest from which such a roar came? We're out on a hike. You hear this tremendous roar right in front of you, right through those trees, and you say, it's, he's, he's fine, he's not, he's just, and you just keep walking there. That would be idiotic. But that's what we do in our lives sometimes. We hear that thunder, we hear that roar, and we keep going. Now, can we become used, used to those roars, used to those warnings, like those who may work in a zoo? who have grown accustomed to lions being in cages, who hear that roar, but they know the lion can't do anything because he's locked up. They've lost their fear and reverence for this incredible creature. We become conditioned to it. Now, some of us may even begin to fear roars of the enemy. We're told that our enemy also, like, goes about, like, prowling like a lion and, and, and kind of trying to imitate God. But it's a, it's a different thing. It's false. It's these imprisoned roars that cause us to doubt, cause us to fear persecution or ridicule from the world. And they can paralyze us into inaction or laziness in our faith. Yet our God is not caged. 
and we should tremble only at the roar of his word. Isaiah 66, 2 says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And that's, a, that's also a two. Um, we see the warning, but we also see the blessing. That God will look at us. If we tremble, he will, he will see, he will forgive. Because he's not only the lion, he's also the lamb. And that's such an amazing, he's both. He's that lion that's roaring. He's that lion that's warning us, that has the power to destroy us. But he's also the lamb that's willing to give himself for us, for our sake, at the same time. So I want to move into the next, uh, next section of a king. We're going to continue in that thought of the king. Proverbs 20, verse 8. And there's a verse down in 26 that I'm going to like meld with that one. But it says, a king who sits on the throne of judgment winnows all evil with his eyes. A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them. And winnow, like that's such an antiquated word. Has anybody winnowed anything here lately? I, there are people that still winnow by hand. And winnow, the word winnow is to separate. It's to separate. To separate the chaff from the grain. To separate, and what this verse is saying is that the king is separating truth from fiction, good from evil. And he sees all, and there are none who can hide from his fiery eyes. This winnowing wheel is, is used to drive over and crush the harvested grain to separate that which is worthless and that which is valuable, those kernels. And just as a study in this, I, you can watch a YouTube video on this. There's some survivalists and some people that like to make their own bread like from scratch. And they go through this whole process on there. And it's, it's really intense. There's, there's so many steps to it. And they end up with a piece of bread about <laughs> And But it's, it is an amazing picture of like how God separates the truth. And there's, there's trauma involved. There's like crushing it, running that wheel over it. They would use a cart in ancient times, like a big cart, and they would drive over it and crush it and crush it and crush it. And then they would take it to a place where the wind blows, and they had some area, and they would just throw it up in the air. And then the wind would blows the chaff out of the, and the seeds fall back down to the ground. And they just keep doing that process until they end up with those little kernels of grain. Now, Again, really the, the biggest idea here is that which is worthless from that which is valuable. John the Baptist is quoted in Matthew 3, verse 12. And this is John the Baptist speaking of Jesus. And he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. See, that valuable wheat he's going to gather into the barn. He's going to shelter. He's going to use. He's going to, he's going to profit from that. That worthless chaff, he has no use for it. It's going to be burned with unquenchable fire. Jesus also used a, he, he used a similar one, but I want to get into, there's another verse where it says John, in John 15 too, where he said, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, 
that it may bear more fruit. And I know that's kind of a different analogy, but he's talking still about that branch that isn't bearing fruit, that's not valuable to him, and it gets taken away. And just like there's some trauma in that separation that goes on in our life sometimes, emotional trauma, spiritual trauma, those trials that will test us to separate the good and the evil out of our life, that's, there's this pruning that goes on so he bears more fruit so that we become more valuable to his kingdom. So also in that analogy, the, the branch and the fruit, is this also this idea of something that's dead and something that is vital, something that's full of life and sap. There's a warning here for us to be valuable fruit, to be seeds and not chaff. There's also a warning for us to winnow our own lives. God gives us that choice. He gives us that ability as human beings and as his children to look at our own lives and say, this isn't good. I'm going to let that blow away like the chaff. Or this is, this is valuable. I'm going to gather this into the barn of my heart. To eliminate those unprofitable parts of ourselves and our lives and seek and harvest the things of God. Continuing on with the king, Proverbs 20, 27, and 28. The spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. And that's, that goes along with that verse I was just talking about, that, that winnowing that should go on in our life, that searching. Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king, and by his steadfast love, his throne is upheld. That is a true statement. But while true, it's far, by far the exception in all worldly kingdoms, where cruelty and oppression are the norm. Um, I don't know if there's a kingdom that exists today that we would say is being upheld by steadfast love, by sacrificial love for its people. It's interesting that Solomon knew this and wrote this. He began his rule with wisdom and humility. Remember, the one thing he asked for God was just, I want wisdom to rule your people well. And it shows that he had a love for these people, a sacrificial love for these people. He could have asked for anything in the world, and that's how his kingdom began. He ruled, again, with love and humility for people and for God. He built this incredible temple. He dedicated all these works to God. But his reign ended in tyranny. It ended in tyranny and idolatry. God had searched and tested his heart, had blessed him beyond all imagination, and yet that, again, that idolatry and disobedience eventually surfaced. So much so that upon his death, his people came before his son, Rehoboam, to plead for mercy and relief from all the hard toil they had endured the heavy yoke that Solomon had put upon them of forced labor. Rehoboam first went to his dad's old advisors, these wizened old men that had remembered the early days, that remembered the glory of the kingdom at its peak. And he went to them first, and this is what they advised. They said, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, 
then they will be your servants forever. That was such amazing counsel, but it so violated Rehoboam's flesh. Me, the king, a servant to these peasants that come and beg. And like he didn't want to hear that. And so he rejected that, not quite at first, but he's like, I'm going to ask my friends. I'm going to ask these, these guys that I've grown up with. I, w- I want to hear what they have to say. And they told him the exact opposite. You've got to bring the hammer on these people. They're getting out of control. You've got to show them who's boss. You've got to dominate them. And from that time on, they rejected that, and there was war in Israel. The kingdom was split, and the kingdom of David was never again. That was the end of it. It was two generations, David and Solomon, and the kingdom was split, and it's never been reunited. It was lost. Now, no man can do this. No man can do what this verse said. Steadfast love, throne upheld forever. The kingdom of God and of our Savior is the only kingdom established and upheld forever in steadfast love. That's the love Christ has for us and for his people, that love of sacrifice and salvation that has no end, the love of resurrection and a new life. And that's why his kingdom never ends, because it's upheld by that steadfast love that he proved on the cross. We have elections coming up. Thank God we had a recent appointee, and I don't follow politics a lot, but this, there's a speaker of the house. Are you guys familiar with kind of the recent that appears to be a godly man? Pray for him. Because he will be, it is so easy for these guys to get corrupted and to fall away and to get into this same domination and to start to appease this group and to, you know, um, compromise here, compromise there. We need to pray for him. I've never even heard of this individual, but I, the only reason I heard about it is because the news is just tearing him apart because he's a Christian. And it's religious persecution at its worst. You know, I don't know the religion of anybody else, but this guy is coming out, and clearly he's doing something right, I guess. And that's not any kind of endorsement. I'm just saying pray for godly people because it's impossible for us in our flesh to maintain in this worldly system that steadfast love for God and for one another. Big shift of gears here. This is a harsh shift, but we're going to Proverbs 24 through 7, and we're going to talk about the sluggard. And that's such a classic word also. We talked about winna, but the sluggard, I've never been called a sluggard. I've been a sluggard, but it just seems like the ultimate insult. It's just such a funny word. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. And we talked about that last week. It's like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. So we have this sluggard, this lazy man. He refuses to plow, but I think it's hilarious. He still goes out at harvest. He's still looking for a harvest. He didn't do anything. I don't know what he thinks is going to happen. It's irrational. He's expecting a harvest, but he refused to plow. 
Now, do we do that? Do I do that? Do we expect good from God, a harvest without being willing to plow when it's time to plow? Proverbs 20, verse 3 says, Love not sleep, lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes, and you will have plenty of bread. And that's an interesting, if we really want to break that down, love not sleep. Well, we know sleep is vital for us. Sleep is good for us. If we stop sleeping, we would literally die. Yet sleep is only appropriate when it's time to sleep. Work is also only appropriate when it's time to work. Throughout the Bible, we're given many, many, many admonitions to rest. So it's these things in its season. But this thing says, love not sleep, meaning that you're sleeping out of season. You're sleeping beyond what you need for a healthy life. I love how this verse admonishes us to simply open our eyes. Not to kill ourselves. Not to enslave ourselves not to make all the right investments, not to scheme and plot and figure out all these ways that we're going to prosper and make a living for ourselves. Open our eyes and see that the Lord is good. Now, what does it mean to have plenty of bread? Plenty of bread. These days we have preservatives in our bread. Bread is normally perishable. It only lasts a very short time. In ancient times, plenty of bread meant bread for the day, maybe the next day. And that was pretty much it. Not months or years. They didn't have freezers where you could put a loaf of bread in there and keep it indefinitely. We had some loaf of bread in the refrigerator for so long, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. It was in there. Every time I'd open the fridge, this is bread. This shouldn't be in here. Clearly, it wasn't very good by the time I finally got around to eating it. But the admonishment here with bread is really day by day to seek our sustenance. And we can't do that if we're asleep. We remember the Israelites in the wilderness who had the manna, this miraculous bread that would come down from heaven, and they had to gather it by a certain time of day. Do you remember that? They had to do it every day, but if they waited until the sun came up and got hot, it would just melt. So if you slept in, you just went hungry. And it's such an example of that that we um, have for our spiritual life as well. Are we sleeping through the sustenance that God has for us? Now, Ephesians 5, 13 and 14 says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. And we have an image there of like, picture a morning, the morning. And then Paul goes on to say, Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When we awake, when we open our eyes to the work he wants to do in our life, when we see his word as true, that's what will truly sustain and nourish us. Again, to sleep out of season, to refuse to plow, to proclaim our own righteousness is to invite impoverishment. Let me try that again. Impoverishment of soul and have an emaciated relationship with the Lord. There's also a deceptive type of bread devoid of nutritional value, like wonder bread. This is the wonder bread that we 
Anybody grow up on Wonder Bread? It's got a lot of nutrients I think they put in it. But it's that deceptive type of bread that's devoid of nutritional value, the dishonest bread of the world, things that we take through violence or fraud. Now, that can be in relation to God's word. We're not talking about things that are necessarily illegal. But Proverbs 20:17 says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. Bread gained by deceit as opposed to honestly obtaining our rightful provision, it seems like a shortcut. The world's always trying to give us a shortcut. Here's an easier way. Here's an easier way. Here's a way to get rich quick. Here's a way to, to not have to do this or not have to pay your taxes or something like that. But what we're told is it leads to chipped teeth and halitosis, our mouth filled with gravel. Now, Proverbs 21, 25, and 26, just continuing in this idea of the sluggard. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Again, we see that refusal, refusal for what God has for him. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. So we have this desire and craving, and yet a refusal to labor and to invest. And that's contrasted with this generosity of the righteous. And really, it's a limitless generosity. He gives and gives and doesn't hold back. He gives beyond even what would appear to be his ability to give. In Jesus' parable of the talents, he makes this statement, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And this verse at first seems unfair. And in one version of that, of that parable, one of, one of the guys with the talents objects. Somebody objects and says, hey, hey, this guy already has everything. Why are you giving it? But it's a, it's a different, we need to look at it differently. Especially in our borderline socialist system that actively takes from those who have and gives to those who have not. See, it's the opposite of that, is what Jesus is saying. It says the one who has, he will give more. The one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And certainly, it would be absurd to institute a government program to give handouts to the 1%, as we call them, right? The 1%. And our government never does that, right? Like multi-billion dollar bailouts for banks and big auto corporations and everything. We don't, we don't, we would never do that. But in terms of craving, I'm reminded again of those Israelites in the wilderness. There was a time where they craved meat. Meat. They wanted that meat, and they had this craving. Sometimes we might have a craving for a certain type of food, but this was a different craving. This was a craving that was born out of sin and discontentment. Sin, sick of gathering day by day, they despised that simple, miraculous manna that he provided. They cried, they wept and complained. They despised the freedom God had given them, and they wanted more. They craved more even so much that they were willing to go back into slavery over that craving, despising all those miracles, all that great deliverance God had wrought in their life. What this proverb and Jesus is telling us is that as we submit to him, as we gather day by day by day, materially, spiritually, 
we will have this divine abundance that will allow us to give without holding back. Proverbs 21, 2 through 8. And these are some Proverbs that I'm just going to read through. And I'm going to read through them kind of slowly. I'm not going to do much exposition on these. But it's God's word. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. And some of those, if they stand out to you, invest some time studying those. Those are some great proverbs. There's so many great themes within that. But I'm going to move down to Proverbs 21. It's verses 9 and verse 19. And this is, this is another big shift. But these verses are so classic. We have to touch on this. And it says, so you women out there, don't, before you, I'm going to get down here when I read this. No one. But it says, it is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. <laughs> you better watch it. That wasn't my, I'm not amening that. It is better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. So we have a corner of a housetop, a desert land, and these are uncomfortable and even uninhabitable places. They're cramped. They're hot. This woman is characterized as quarrelsome and fretful, and she certainly seems hard to live with. Up ahead in Proverbs 27, uh, 15 and 16, there's another verse that complements these. And it says, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. So now we have this idea also of continual dripping. And you think of this, you've heard of Chinese water torture where that just one drop, they put it, you know, it hits you in the head and it drives you insane. We know that dripping water over time can wear away granite. The raft guides told me a story sometimes down in the gorge or some of these uh, beautiful rock formations. I'm sure Tommy knows about this, but the, somebody will like vandalize and spray paint a rock or something like that. And these guys, every raft that goes by, they'll splash a little bit of water on it with their paddle. You know, because sometimes it's out of the water level. That's why they do it. So they'll splash a little bit. And over a few years, it's gone. It's amazing. It kind of cleans itself just with that little bit of water over time. But we know it can wear away granite, one of the hardest stones. Dripping water a little tiny bit over time can destroy your house's foundation. It can make giant stalactites in these dank, dark caverns, caverns that would kill you if they fell on you. And you think about that in your soul, that dripping water in your heart, these, these formations are kind of forming, right? These, these pointy, sharp, um, kind of really crazy-looking stalactites. 
So this woman, she seems out of control. She seems bent on the destruction of her household. And we're reminded of the woman folly that we talked about in the, in the beginning chapters. The personification of folly, that, that opposite of wisdom. Now, these verses are a clear admonition to women to be agreeable. Not quarrelsome, faithful, and not fretful. I think a lot of you women, a lot of you ladies, and I'm not... I'm going to generalize a little bit. I don't think you realize the profound effect and influence you have on us as your husbands. While men are considered leaders of the home, it's women who inspire and empower men to lead. It's women who often set the tone in a home. And we're told it's by their influence and their wisdom and their industriousness that a home is truly sanctified and prosperous. And that's what we're going to look at in Proverbs 31. What a great role that women have in our lives. But we see the danger when that role gets out of, gets out of whack. I also see in these verses a really clear admonition to the church. We're called his bride. We're called, you know, we're into a special loving relationship with the Lord. And I have to ask, I mean, as a church... Are we chasing Jesus into the corner of the housetop? Are we running him out into the wilderness when we quarrel and fight with one another? Are we as a church dripping, continual dripping water, you know, causing the world like to go insane like that, that Chinese water torture? Are we the fountain of living water that God wants us to be? Not that dripping, not that annoyance but that refreshment in life to the world? Are we the type of house that is hospitable, nurturing, and generous? Or the type of house beaten down with infighting and conflict? I don't think we have a lot of those problems in our church, and I'm very thankful for that. But that's also that admonition when we say, I don't want to just hammer on the women. I think there's a spiritual application for us, the bride, his church, to also not be fretful, to not be quarrelsome. And there's many other admonitions within Scripture that touch on that. So this last section, um, Proverbs 21, it's the last two verses. And these are fantastic verses too. I love these. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. The horse is made ready for the day of battle but the victory belongs to the Lord. All other teaching, all other counsel that we can get from the world is like that foolish counsel of Rehoboam's friends. Counsel that leads to division, ignorance, and war. Or it can be like those deceptive and toothless roars of the enemy that will not prevail, and there's nothing we can do to arm ourselves Against him. Now, this is the way my mind thinks. I started thinking about horses. There's, there's actually some really cool verses in, in the Bible overall about horses that describe horses. And um, they, they feature prominently in Scripture. And that's a factor of this being a historical record and there being a lot of horses. But who in here owns horses? Does anybody own horses? Anybody? No horse owners? 
they are intimidating creatures, aren't they? I mean, I've never owned a horse, but I go to a lot of properties that have some horses, and um, yeah, I mean, they're smart, they're huge, they're powerful, but they're also very gentle. And we know that there's been many remarkable horses throughout history. Um, so I looked up like some remarkable war horses throughout history that are, that are known. Some of these you may know. Me, I love ancient history. One of the first ones that I thought of was Bucephalus. And that was Alexander the Great's horse. That word in Greek, is it means ox head. Because this was a huge horse, this big, powerful war horse. And the legend was that um, his father, Philip the king, they were, they were breaking horses. The Macedonians were great horse people. And they had um, this horse out there, this giant stallion, and nobody could ride him. Nobody could tame him. He was untamable. And, and Philip was about to say, you know, just, I don't want this one. Move on. And for something, Alexander saw this horse, and he, he had an affinity for it. And he, you know, the legend is he went to his dad and says, you know, I want that horse. He says, well, if you can ride him, it's yours. And he did. He went over and he did the horse whisperer thing and he rode the horse. And that horse took him into all his early campaigns. And it was this famous, it's a big part of his story, finally died in battle much, much later into his reign. There's a horse, Marengo, and that was Napoleon's Arabian stallion that he rode on numerous campaigns. It was his favorite horse and it was eventually captured when he was defeated at Waterloo. There was a horse in American history named Comanche. Anybody heard, heard of this horse? So Comanche, legend is that he was the only survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. He survived despite having seven bullet wounds and showed up back to camp with arrows sticking out of him. And he survived and was able to heal up. One of the most amazing stories, and I want all of you to go home and Wikipedia this, because I was just blown away by it. I'd never heard of this horse, but it's a horse called Sergeant Reckless. Has anybody ever heard of Sergeant Reckless? And I think it's a real tragedy that we don't know about this horse. My grandfather was in the 1st Marine Division in the Korean War, and that's where this horse was. And he was over in Korea. He was a fearless and decorated Marine Corps hero of that war. His feats of bravery and fortitude are amazing. There was one day where he did 51 missions through enemy fire, got wounded a couple times. He did that on his own. He didn't have a rider. They would load him up with munitions and send him over to the guys where they needed him. And he knew all these routes by heart. He's an amazing horse. He ended up being retired at Camp Pendleton, but was is a highly decorated Marine Corps hero, literally. He was he was promoted up into the rank of like staff sergeant or something pretty high. Now all these horses, all these remarkable creatures that God created that were so, um, again, so, so incredible and so valuable to their owners, they all died. They all died at some point. The victory that Jesus achieved over sin and death is a battle we're not equipped for no matter what horse we have, no matter what things that we try to equip ourselves with, it's a war that we can't win. But in him, we're told that we are more than conquerors. And that's the part of this. The horse is made ready for the day of battle. I think God does want us to be prepared for things. I don't think he wants us to sit back and not do anything. But again, understanding that no matter what we do, no matter how uh, armed we are, 
how strong we are. The battle truly is the Lord's, and we are more than conquerors in him. So, Lord, thank you again for this evening. Thank you for your word and and for this time in it. And, um, Lord, we're just amazed by you. We're in awe of you. Help us to go forth this week just wanting to tell others about you and um, to relate everything we can back to you. And, um, again, we pray for um, the harvest party coming up. We pray for the service tomorrow. And um, we just thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Have a good night.